Thank you, and hello, and uh, I am truly glad to be back. If I remember correctly, uh, the first and last time I read in this space, there were torrential rains, and I could hear only the downpour. Uh, this time, you are uh, foredoomed to hear me instead. And uh, I'm told uh, it should be wrapped up in roughly 40 minutes, but like most old Vermonters, I have no intention of paying any attention to authority. Six and a half hours from now, we may perhaps be done. Uh, I do want to talk a little bit about what I want to read to you, though probably not uh, talk about it at length or take questions afterwards, because happily I will be around for what may soon seem to you like a kissing cousin to eternity, and I, I look forward to spending time with you in private and in the workshop tomorrow in quasi-public. But here's what I want to say about this. Um, I, I wasn't born in this country and uh, to a degree was raised outside of it and spent a good deal of uh, my early life elsewhere. And I tried to pretend that, that was the case in my early uh, novels, which is to say my first book, which came out when I was genuinely a baby, um, took place, was set in Greece. Um, the novel uh, that preceded uh, this one um, was set in the south of France, and I kind of wandered around and attempted to persuade myself and probably no one else that I was a citizen of the world and uh, had uh, lateral rather than vertical roots. In my early to mid-twenties, however, that changed. I took a, a job teaching in uh, the corner of the state that no true Vermonter thinks of as Vermont, uh, the southwest uh, corner, uh, Bennington, where I uh, kind of fell in love with the landscape. And at a certain point, I was walking around the bounds of this large property on which I uh, lived as a renter, and I realized that I, I was an American writer. Uh, it was silly of me to pretend otherwise. This was the landscape I knew and loved, and that I wanted to write about it. And I did that at disconcerting length. I wrote a trilogy called... Uh, collectively the Sherbrooke's trilogy, the first novel of which was called Possession, came out in 1977 before most of you were born, um, the next uh, Sherbrooke's in 78, and the last of them, uh, a book called Stillness, came out in 1980. They did, it's fair and not boastful to say, um, uh, quite well. Uh, they had a... Uh, an honorable shelf life, they became paperbacks, et cetera, et cetera. They stuck around for a while. Um, and then they did that thing which most books do, retired into a, a more or less honorable obscurity and disappeared. Uh, recently and flatteringly, a publisher asked me to reissue them uh, on the anniversary, in effect. And um, I said I would do that under the condition that I could rewrite them and um, uh, make them, which in some sense I had always intended them to be, a single long novel rather than three short ones published seriatim. So this August, uh, Dalkey Archive Press is going to publish a book called Sherbrooke's, 
which goes on a very long time, and um, which uh, is a version of these three books I published a very long time ago. But it was fascinating to me to renew and revisit uh, that, those early uh, texts, um, because, well, for openers, uh, and, and as you will shortly hear, I will indeed stop and start the proper business of this evening. Um, the protagonist of uh, Possession is a 76-year-old Vermonter called Judah Sherbrooke. Uh, and I'm now a whole lot closer to his age than I am to that of the kid who wrote about him um, in his early 30s. So I have some sense, uh, I had some sense of what I got wrong and what I got right. I mean, I think in, in brief, the good news is that I'm a better writer now than I was then. And the bad news is the same, so that I ended up rewriting the whole damn trilogy um, and uh, saying, how did they ever let me get away with this or, or, or publish it? Um, so that's that. Uh, and I will be happy to talk about it in greater detail uh, as the week progresses. But I thought I would read to you, because we are in Vermont, and I haven't done this in upwards of 30 years, uh, from the very beginning of uh, Possession, uh, and then a brief excerpt from a middle chapter. I'm hoping and assuming you can all hear me, yes? It is cold where he sits. The big house too is cold, but there at least they can set fires. He's laid in 40 cords, just having the fence lines trimmed and thinning the pines from the hardwood lot by Bailey's. What with 14 fireplaces, he figures on a cord a week. It's taken better than that, but not a bad winter for snow, not as high as the window where he sits. Still, it has been continual and wet, with a march that set Harriet muttering. Why not California, she cried at him. Why not Carolina? Why not any place but this place? What keeps us here this winter? Answer me that. He made no answer, of course. She never in her life had left and would never leave. You can lie here, Hattie said. All right, I'll grant you that. You can be buried here. Will all of us be buried here? But what's the matter with a trip to Carolina in the winter? Or maybe New Orleans. You said you loved New Orleans. Remember how you said that once? The cords line the front of the cow barn. He had had them stacked there in October, starting on the north wall, to keep at least that much wind back. It took ten cords to front the wall, and then they'd gone eighty feet east and eighty feet south and west. Biggest log cabin around, Judah joked. Now all we need's the roof. Still, it is a charmed enclosure four foot high and four foot wide and trim. They took the deadwood first from the south. He'd walked in November through the space the ash logs left and stood in the center of his heat fort. Lord, give me one more winter, he would pray. Lord, grant me one more spring. Early on, he'd had the habit of prayer, and then as he grew older, the habit of blasphemy. Now he mixed the two and wasn't sure of the proportion. God, let the sap in me run. 
You've got no earthly reason, his sister would say, not to waste this time, not to visit New Orleans instead of just lying up here. But lie there he would, or sit, or stand in his diminishing fort. From the window where he sits now in April, the wood is a single squat line. There's sugar maple left to burn and locust and hickory wood. He'd not permitted sugaring this year. He'd lost his sweet tooth anyhow, and the prophet wasn't worth the trouble, and he wanted sap in the trees. There'd been bloodletting and leeching enough in his time. So he cut a hole in the pond ice and took the thousand sugaring taps and funneled them down through the lake, through the hole. Then he took an awl and pierced the thousand buckets three times through each bucket base. It had been slow work. The buckets stood in the sugar house, piled ten high and in one hundred piles. Judith worked the best part of an afternoon, each afternoon for a week. He'd take a bucket and upend it and drive the oil through in irregular patterns, working it around so just a drop of solder wouldn't fix the leak. Then, when he'd finished with a pile, he'd set it back in place, his right arm tired easily, even in methodical destruction, and he took his time. The sugar house was empty, but for the buckets and vats. The rafters were charred, the raccoon leavings at his feet. There was wood by the north wall, though not from this year's cutting, and Judah remembered 15 years back working with the men. The vats would bubble boiling, and they cut the syrup down with fat. They'd string lard across the pans, maybe four inches over, and he never tired of watching how the froth would bubble and accumulate and mount to the fat back, then fall. He tired of nothing those years. He never tired from the heat or the 24-hour work shifts or the taste of scotch with syrup. It sweetens the whiskey, he said, and it sours the sugar water, best of both possible worlds. The sun shines through the 12-pane window to his left. He turns his face. He shuts one eye, then the other. With one eye shut, his nose appears, and he concentrates on his nose and shifts eyes and watches his nose line shift. Harriet would want him in for drinks. You mix, she'd say. I'll have what you're having. I'll have a whiskey, he'd say. Not that again, she'd complain. How about a whiskey sour? Or a slow gin, maybe? Or a Manhattan? Why don't you offer me that? I'm having whiskey, he'd say. You have whatever you want. Make me a Manhattan, please, she'd say. I can't abide whiskey straight and one single maraschino cherry for the taste. He would have started already, since he knew the game. He would select the bottles and glasses from the sideboard, measuring her measures with deliberation. Your health, he'd offer. Your health. There'd be ice in the ice bucket and maraschino cherries on the silver tray. Judah watches his nose and the sun's light go incorporeal. He rearranges his scarf. It is cold at noon in the toy house where he sits, and he's been attending to detail since dawn. He fills the house. It isn't over windy, but he's brought his sheep rug and has some deciding to do. He thinks himself a hunter. His first quarry is his wife. His sister 
can wait on her maraschino cherries, and he can wait on scotch. There are ways and ways, Judah says to himself, all kinds of ways. There's 15 ways to skin a cat in a whole town studying. I got to bait them with the prettiest. There's law courts come to that. I got to know what I'm about before I get on track on it. I got to bait my traps. This satisfies him seemingly. He puts his hand on his belly, then thigh. The chair he rises from is a child's settee. His grandfather had built the toy house for his children and his children's children and their friends. It is a replica of the big house, scaled one to ten or so, but without the fireplaces. His grandfather had caused equivalent gables and the clock tower to be erected. The toy house, in faithful imitation, is built of white clabbered and slate. Since it's four stories high, the toy house is tall enough for Judah to stand at his ease. He measures six foot two in socks. Now he has boots on and stretches. His right hand touches the upstairs landing outside of what was Maggie's room. He puts his middle finger on the place where she would sleep. I actually do want to try to honor Gary's suggestion that this be over in perhaps 40 minutes, and so I'm going to leave you to imagine the next 700 pages. Um, uh, that is the very beginning of, of the whole. What's not quite yet clear is that he's an old man. I, I hope it's getting clear. He's 76. Um, his wife, who's much younger, as you will hear shortly, has left him a long time back, and he's kind of teased and inveigled her back to this big house. It is a large property um, uh, with the uh, promise slash threat that he is dying and that if she shows up, she can inherit the estate. So she does um, come back, and that's the bulk of the action of this book. Um, but I thought I would uh, read you um, at somewhat greater length from their first encounter uh, when he meets the woman you just heard of as Maggie uh, when she's a child, right? Judah met her first in 1938. He remembered the influenza scare of 20 years before. You opened the window and in flew Enza. That had been a chant of the time. Maggie flew into his window at 13. She knocked on the big house side door. She was up for the summer, she said, and out riding her bicycle for the afternoon and would be late for supper and was lost. Judah had been balancing accounts. He liked the work. It had a neatness of notation, and there had been that summer a deal more black than red. So he looked up not unkindly to set this girl's stranger straight. She stood in his door like a stork. She was long-legged already and was rubbing her left leg with her right instep where it itched above the ankle. She was fighting back crying, he saw, and had grass stains and dirt and burdock down the side of her dress. You take a spill? He asked. Yes. She pulled at her left side. Hurt much? Yes, she said, but not now. Well, where are you going to? She asked. 
he asked. She told him, and he knew the place and was impressed by her bicycling diligence. Give or take a couple, she traveled 20 miles. Later, when he'd married her and they had children and the birth announcement was a picture of a stork, he remembered how she could have been his own child then, was more than young enough, her angularity is just bone and raw-lunged stridency. She rounded off in time. The stridency diminished and became contempt. The bone fleshed out, and the 25-year difference between them was a quarter of a century, not years. He'd lived through years, and first they were to his advantage, and then his disadvantage, and years was a word they worried at, like dogs disputing ownership of some cow's cooked rib. But quarter of a century had no age implication. It didn't implicate him. You couldn't strip or splinter it or lie in the chair's shade digesting. It was a time lump, single, simple, and Maggie swallowed it whole. Only then she was swallowing dust. He had offered her something to drink. I'd like a glass of water, please, she said. We can do better than that. Have root beer. Have some cider. I'd like some water, please. He went to the kitchen and let the cold tap run and drew a glass of water for her, seeing the glass bead. You come on in, Judah said. You can use the telephone if they've got a number to call. He offered her the water, and she sniffed and swirled it, then drank. He watched her, watching him. He saw her yellow bike propped against the fence. He was feeling generous and knew the generosity not typical. Knew even then it was compounded of the afternoon's accounts and the honeysuckle smell in that soft air, the chill of his right hand's wet palm, and the suspicion that she evidenced about the glass he gave. Her city manners nicely according with this new country necessity. Knew that he liked the bravura about her. Not tears she'd been fighting back, but not not tears either and the distance she'd traveled since breakfast. Knew also he could circle back by Harry Nickerson's and settle up about the silo and visit with Harry and find out what was happening to Tim. Knew suddenly the house had held him for too long, and why not break a habit and accommodate this once, since she too was mistrustful and polite, and offered her a ride. I couldn't do that, the girl said. Why not? too much trouble, she said. Going that way anyway. I've got my bike. I got a truck, he told her. We'll haul it. I couldn't, Maggie said. Thanks anyway. And for the water. Put that glass down, Judah said. He stepped around her and down off the porch and picked her bike up and slung it in the truck bed and tied it to the crossbar, then laid it on burlap so it wouldn't scratch. Get in, he said, we're going, and climbed into the cab. She had obeyed him, of course. She edged the door shut, and he told her to slam it. She did. Yet there was something peremptory in her submission, a kind of acquiescence that made the favor conferred seem not his favor, but hers. She accepted compliments as he'd seen some men take insults as though it was the rightful portion, properly bestowed. Praise was her rightful portion, even then. 
Later, she would enter rooms as though she knew he'd rise expectant and would walk into the room's door knowing some man would sweep it open. Beauty was conferred on her, he knew, and was its own authority, though at 13 the conferral had been tentative, mawkish, a first rehearsing only of the spectacle to come. And she sat there stork-legged, voluble, pitching her voice high against the engine din. He asked her name. She announced it. Margaret Cutler. Where are you from? He asked. From New York City. Manhattan. Where in New York City? 83rd Street, Maggie said. In the just about exact middle of town, between Park Avenue and Madison. Do you know where that is? Close enough, he said. Well, I think it's the very nice nicest part of New York City, because there's a museum there, and I have a real bike, not like that one, she tossed her head, and I ride it to school if I'm late, or Mary doesn't feel like walking, or for any reason mostly, as long as I wait for the lights, and don't get lost. You can't, really, not in Manhattan. You'd know that if you knew it well. There's Central Park, there's the East River to the east, and the Hudson to the west, and the even-numbered streets run east. He cut across Route 7, and took the old east road. She chattered while he watched her idly, and he'd forgotten now if indeed he had ever remembered, had then seen fit to remember, or had listened even to her sing-song litany of how to get to where you're going and her game of naming trees, what else she told him or asked. She asked, though, he remembered, to be let off two miles from her house. My mother would be angry, she explained, at me making you come all the way. I can make it back from here, really, really and truly. I take the first left turning, and then it's just down that hill. Please? He stopped the truck. The clutch was giving out. They settled, lurching. She smiled at him. The images coincident again. Girl become woman, though practicing, and with her bite plate still, and pedaled off. He was not sorry. He started up and turned at the fork and made for Nickerson's. She'd known enough, he knew, not to bring some stranger back, and maybe knew enough to work the sweat and dust up on her on her trip's last leg, arriving breathy, cheerful, just in time for supper, and not admitting how she'd lost her way or found it, giving a fair imitation of hunger, and hungry enough anyhow to do justice to the soup. He taxed her with that later. Why me, he'd ask. Why me? You're fishing for compliments, darling. Maybe, he acknowledged, what made you pick me then? When? The first time? Later? Whenever? She smiled at him, showing her teeth. She had a toothache in her right incisor, he knew, and touched it with her tongue. Why not? She said. No reason not to. It was such a lovely house. Now Judah knows with bitterness her talent for deceit. He wonders if he'd been a part of her sin schooling then and sourced to some white half-lie or omitted truth. He's watched her late arrivals often enough. He wonders how many doors she's knocked at or been asked to enter and how many times he's waited two miles from her drop-off point, consulting his watch. Her appetite was checked. 
She's reined it in too many years to give it its head now. So she'd arrive, not cheerful, not breathless, to get at her plate and ring for wine and have a cigarette. He hated cigarettes. Now they slaked her hunger, she said, as a glass of chill white wine would slake her thirst. She could puff out smoke rings and did so coolly while he watched. She was the only woman ever to dare smoke rings in his house. She crossed her legs and sat there smoking, drinking, in pure opposition. He knew she used the smoke stink to cover up her body's stench from love. He broke or hid the ashtrays, and she dropped her matches and ash on the floor. She was a woman, always, who landed on her two feet when she fell. It hadn't been an accident, he came to decide, that she knocked on the big house door and not at some farmhouse or barn. Yet what he calls deception, she had called tact. She was a reed bending before him, pliant, at first even obsequious in public, but she never broke. She took the big house over like it was a toy house, something manageable. She charmed them all, just sitting there, crossing and uncrossing her legs, engaging in discussions as to Adlai Stevenson. Christ, he'd asked her, who's this Adlai Stevenson to get so worked up over? An egghead with egg on his face, a politician like the others, but a bit less expensive to buy. Or practicing her, her scales. She read aloud. In the evening, she would read him Tennyson, or John Greenleaf Whittier, or Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, and often he thought there were messages in what she read, some selection code he couldn't quite crack. She read them with a deference that was kissing cousin to mockery. She read of babbling brooks in a voice that made him think of babbling brooks. She read of leafy copses in the azure empyrean in a way that made him see both woods and sky. Yet she did so, he hunted the term, holding back. She was always holding back. Even in her hurtling run, or the way she came at him headlong, or the ferocity she showed him when cornered at last, there was something inside her inviolate, observing. It was like those Chinese boxes on the windowsill. There was Meg inside of Megan, and Megan inside Maggie, and all of them inside of Margaret. But inside Maggie, his final pet name, in the epicenter of her, impenetrable, there was a stranger that he could not touch or name. He'd gone clumsy-fingered at the last. He couldn't pick that lock. Even penetrating his wife, with her pinioned beneath and Judah at his full extent, there was some final love veil that he could not lift. She stared at him, eyes hooded, and he never knew for certain what she, tilting, glazed, had seen. Nor did he want to know. He was nearly, for the one time of his manhood, fearful. He had loved her nearly for the limitation of her love for him, he who had been limitless in love. It was that serpent glare he feared, her head thrown back, neck arched, and the veins in her neck working while he worked above her. He had power in reserve. He had wealth and women in reserve. He had had, for the first years, the advantage of years. 
So he pitted his battering strengths against her receptive inertia. He pitted his heat and her chill. It was a standoff, mostly, though he sometimes thought he won, exulting in the warmth of her, then found it reflected, or foxfire. Maybe she got heat she got in Providence those weeks she spent there with what she said was her cousin, maybe heat from mazurka, a mazurka or a valse polonaise. And therefore, he traded off his leverage and gave her cars or the permission to smoke cigarettes or not to visit with him when he visited their son at elementary school. He knew that he must look the clown. He knew what they said of him in the village and what his sister must think. He guessed what cousin Alexander said of him in that pitch-pine, wainscoted, third-floor walk-up in Providence on Benefit Street. He knew what the dairy hands said even, and Margaret's mother. But they none of them would venture in his impeding presence, one syllable aloud. It didn't matter anyhow. He shucked off gossip like flies. He had always done so and would, and there had been envy and malice abounding. What mattered was her laughter at Alexander's jokes. What mattered was the way she had no eye hoods on when talking to the dairy hands or watching Arthur Schnabel. What mattered was decorum gone, the love veil and serpent glare dropped. He saw her again that summer, at the summer's end. There was a carnival in town, and Judah went the third day. Samson Finney said the carnival strongman held the world's weight-lifting record for the two-handed curl and press. And maybe it was so, and maybe it wasn't so, but any man who'd lift that fat, bearded lady was strong, and any man who'd do it more than once was, Finney joked, certainly a jerk. Judah shot at sitting cardboard ducks. He studied the construction of the carousel. There were 11 horses on the outside ring and seven on the inside ring, painted in alternating patterns, brown and pink and white. The horses rose and dipped. He calculated by the pole's rubbed sheen, four feet. The carousel began. The music was the music of the Sheikh of Araby. She clattered past him, wearing red. Her hair was in a cap and plaited, and he knew her, but not how he knew her. She swooped and circled, not side-saddle, but riding as a man would ride, flourishing her cap. She was with friends, he decided, and playing Calamity Jane. He drifted to the ball toss where they tossed for Cupid dolls. His aim was inexact. He found, he told lawyer Finney, this particular car carnival dull. He'd lost his taste for carnivals, he said. And there was a time the world seemed playful and cause for celebration, and he'd down a bottle of Applejack brandy on anybody's say-so to celebrate the world. Let's do it, Finney said. Let's celebrate the world. It's going to hell in a handcart, Judah said. All the more reason, all the greater opportunity for this little drink. There's not any reason not to, Judah said. He took a pill from, pull from Finney's flask. He was standing there, tasting it, feeling the heat course through him when she waved. He'd got her name now, Maggie, and the circumstance, though he hadn't been sure at the carousel's gate edge and wasn't over-certain now, was thinking of that mad house painter in Munich and his chances for wrecking the planet. 
was thinking of the sluice way that his intestines made, how the Applejack dispersed out even to his elbows, was calculating the profit at a nickel a ride and 18 people to the ride, assuming the carousel full, assuming the barker could fill it 50 times a night. Good evening, the girl said. Good evening, Maggie, he said. Mr. Judah Porteous Sherbrooke, she smiled. She shook back her plates. You've got a memory, he said. I never thanked you properly. I inquired your name. You never told me Porteous. I asked after that. You thanked me, Judah said. I'm going to New York, she said, tomorrow. I've had a lovely summer. I've got to go now, but thanks. You're welcome, Judah finished. She bobbed and moved off, quickening. He knows the child is father to the man. The wish is father to the thought and necessity the mother of invention. From that first spawning instant, the sex and size and wit of his sons was ordained. The ordination of the chromosomes, he thinks, that's my true ministry. That's what I ought to preach. She was a demon always, so why not today? White clover, Judah knew, stays in the ground upwards of 70 years. Her propriety and laughter was a seed then, germinant. She planted something in him, though he would not know it, would forget her name once more and this their second encounter until she reminded him later in their proper courtship of how he'd rocked back on his heels and neglected to acknowledge how she'd grown, was growing, had won a picture of George Washington at bingo, would plow his bedfields under repeatedly and labor enough in his time to tire of it nearly, would reconcile himself to widowhood and bachelorhood, the two indeterminate fusing since his first wife had died early on that took a decade to sprout. Now in all uh, honor and honesty, I ought to tell you that it's 40 minutes past the hour, uh, but Gary took all that time to start, didn't he? Um, I mean, endless introduction, really. Uh, I would, with your permission, though you are also permitted to go, like to read you two more pages about when they meet at 23. Um, Yes, so, okay. That's called stacking the deck. Thank you very much. <laughs> Maggie had been 23. It, the previous line was, it took a decade to sprout. She was 13, right? Maggie had been 23. She called herself then Megan. He met her at Morrissey's Grocery, selecting cheese. She was reading the label and price on camembert. He had taken camembert from the same counter two days before, and the cheese had been inedible. He'd returned it, of course. He'd complained to Morrissey that the stuff was so damn overripe, the cow that produced it was ten years buried, and a cowhide wallet worn away with all those doctor bills. Matter of fact, Judah said, I shouldn't wonder if this was the milking that killed it. Morrissey had laughed and credited him and produced a new camembert cheese. Judah told this story to the girl at the cheese counter, and she turned to face him and was familiar. I know you, Judah said. No? I've seen you before, he said. It's possible, she said. Yes, not lately. 
No, I haven't been here. She had calculated lifting her right index finger since 1938. I knew you then, he said, recollecting. You lost your way on that bike. And there was nothing timorous about her now, no trace of that thin supplicant. She was model slim still, was indeed, she told him later, working as a model in New York, but hated it, hated the hair dryers she sat, she sat beneath for hair dryer ads, the vacuum cleaner parts she assembled and disassembled for vacuum cleaner catalog ads, the people that she worked with sometimes, and their whole notion of chic. Have dinner with me, Judah said. We'll have to fat you up. I can't, she said, but speculative, smiling. Thanks anyway. Of course you can. You're kind to ask. For old acquaintance sake, he said, and wondered why he pestered her and why he felt persistent. And with friends. Well, bring them, Judah said. She replaced the camembert cheese. My name, she held her right hand out, is Megan. And mine is Judah Sherbrooke, Megan. Maggie, welcome back. I'm passing through, she said. I'll tell the others. Yes, they're waiting outside. I'll be back, Mr. Judah Porteous Sherbrooke. She turned with her hair swirling, and he watched her out the door. Look at that, Morrissey said. I'll take 10 pounds of sirloin, Judah said. Now get behind that meat shelf and behave. You ought to be ashamed. Morrissey, Wolf whistled. I am, Lordy mercy, I am. He listened to Amos and Andy and was working on the accent. Lordy mercy, he repeated. I gosh, I'll get out ashamed. Judah stood by the cereal's shelf. He remembers wishing for a moment that she'd get back on her bike or car or motorcycle, whatever conveyance she used now, or some second stranger's pickup truck and leave him to his evening's plan, a walk a meal, a smoke, the solitude he broke from only in his aimless grazing habit pen. She said to him later that week, three coincidences. That's once too often to take for granted. How else do people meet, he asked. Through introductions, she said, through school friends or through family or, or work. Her friends had come and stayed for drinks, then left, were never present, really, were mustachioed absences between the bookcase and the standing lamp, were twittering there like magpies, wearing cameras, asking for Singapore slings. He asked her to remain. She was his dream of welcome, with everything ajar. He barbecued 10 pounds of sirloin and dropped the whole thing on her plate. I dwarfed the plate. It bled onto the cloth. You're joking, Margaret said. No. You'll spoil me with that kind of joke. Spoiled rotten, he sat down. If you haven't spoiled already, like that cheese. He leaned back, pleased with himself. He studied her gestures, engorging. She sliced and chewed with delicacy and was theatrical. She would eat his life. Thank you. <laughs>